Welcome to Season 1, Episode 43 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties. Today, we have a conversation with actor Dilip Rao, star of Drag Me to Hell, Avatar, and Inception. We are excited to bring you this episode as we explore Dilip's incredible story. From Jeopardy to Hollywood, there's a lot to unpack here. Before we think twice about having some in-flight champagne, we are Chelsea, Joe, and Mark. Three friends doing our best not to be cursed by angry elderly women. If somehow you got here by accident after waking up from several dreams within dreams, why not try looking for us on all major podcast platforms by typing in Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our blog. If you like this show, leave us a review. Or tell us what you think by emailing digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. Your feedback helps us out a lot, and we always like hearing from our listeners. We want to understand more about your journey and how you got to where, you know, maybe some projects you worked on, but we like to focus on just as much of like your origin story as we would um, some specific questions about, you know, properties and, and stuff like that. So um, I was bitten by a radioactive nerd. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I say origin story. It makes it sound like I'm a character and I'm definitely not my origin. I was the sperm that won. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, like the best answer to that is I was, you know, um, a middle class, mostly Indian American kid. My parents are immigrants from India. I was born in Los Angeles. I kind of grew up all over the world. I had a lot of opportunities to diversify my thinking and be exposed to different cultures and Arab culture. I live in Saudi Arabia, um, American kind of Western white culture with some minorities in Colorado, then back to LA, which is a much more diverse, much larger field and much bigger cultural experience. So and then I went to college in San Diego where I was studying to be a doctor. At least that's what I wanted to be. And I, you know, my parents really wanted that. I wanted that. It seemed like what we all wanted. And then I, you know, fell into the theater and it was like uh, you suddenly know what country you're from, right? You, they, you look at the passport and it's your pictures in there. And I, I, you know, I knew it immediately and I really wanted to do it. I was a little scared of my parents and I told them and I had good reason to be afraid because they were incredibly disappointed and horrified by a kid going to college, suddenly deciding he's going to be an actor. Right. And, you know, there's different kinds of people who enter our profession from different places and different times. Like, you know, there's some people who move to L.A. when they're 12 with their parents and do it. You know, there's some people who move to L.A. when they're 16 without their parents and do it. There's all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Some people do the, mm -hmm. you know, theater circuit for 25 years and then fall into filmmaking and kind of don't like it and go back. You know, like there's so many ways to do it. And so for me, the journey really was about learning skills, learning aptitudes. I kind of didn't really know what I was doing at that age. I was very young, but not you know, like I said, people start a lot younger than me. Yeah. Um, I think I had some talent, but I definitely had uh, more passion than knowledge. And sure. so then I went to drama school. Um, I went to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, uh, headed at the time of Melissa Smith, who just recently stepped out and passed away from cancer, a beloved teacher of mine. I was in her first class. Uh, I learned a lot there. A lot of it was both learned consciously and unconsciously. Acting is a kind of a funny um thing to learn it's more akin to learning like dance or um a, a sport sometimes because it's a very body-centered thing it's a physical enterprise mm -hmm. not an intellectual one um, although that can help you a lot and that's it's useful to be cerebrally bright and all that but i think it, it you know it's principally a physical enterprise you have to learn things in your body that are not 
memorized like you know your lines or something even your lines mm-hmm. should be memorized that way like there's lots of theories about this shit, but like it's it became to me a, a really deep understanding of the physical process of the human being how your body informs your mind how deeply your feelings are your physical part of your psyche and your physical being itself and how mind body connection is really you know it's a fundamental part of how your voice is produced how your your how fast your brain works how it works through your body how you feel things how the audience feels things and then you know later on through a lens so i learned a lot of that there and a lot of it was really tough for me to learn it was much harder to learn than stuff that was you know academically more collegiate like when i was learning you know the sciences and math and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things those things are much easier i think for a cerebrally adroit young man like i was this was a little bit more esoteric and a little bit more um you had to like have a lot of faith of the process working on you while you had no concept that it was working. So anyway, I went there. I, I think every single artist, every single actor, you start working through your strengths and realize there's a lot more to go with your strengths. And then you start ameliorating your weaknesses and those never get quite as strong as your strengths. But you try to get a balanced uh, approach and a kind of balanced um, uh, understanding uh, and way of working so that your toolkit is full. And yeah, you may not be the greatest guy with a tiny little socket wrench, but you've always been good with a hammer and a saw or like you don't know how to use it all, right? But you're a great paint person. Like you have to know what you do and then you work on the stuff you don't do. And then sometimes the stuff you don't know very well, it produces great gifts and great breakthroughs and great satisfaction, even though you may not reach an aptitude that, where it's like, you know, that's the best thing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a lifelong process that I started working in the theater off and on, off and on. Uh, I started getting better jobs, worse jobs. And then you learn, you know, acting is a job. Like I was saying, it's, you, you are auditioning, you are, you're getting jobs, someone by word of mouth, you're getting, uh, you're into a director, director says, yeah, I'll put you in this play and do that. And so I thought I worked on stage for like, you know, I think close to eight years, not quite, but close to eight years out of drama school mm-hmm. and didn't do anything in front of camera. And I really think, you know, I wasn't comfortable for the camera. Mm-hmm. I didn't really feel welcome in, uh, to be honest with you, like in filmed entertainment because uh, LA particularly while very diverse, you know, mm-hmm. um, this is a time, it's not even that long ago, but uh, yeah. you really couldn't audition for anything if you looked like me, unless there was a part specifically written for you to be a featured sort of um, character through mm-hmm. the white eyes of the white creators. And so you really didn't have much of a chance of breaking through and creating a career because nothing, there was, no, there was no character for you to continue playing, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you, on a very special episode of, uh, you know, blah blah they encounter an Indian dude, like, and then you and every other Indian dude are up for that part, like, you may not have another job chance like that the entire year, you know? So, like, yeah. and the theater mm-hmm. was less racist on its face, but still had its issues, right? Like, if there was an Indian play or a play about immigrants, which is, like, again, a window box from a very white point of view about what people are doing, mm-hmm. um, you might get a chance to do that. And I was also very glad to get those opportunities, of course, but you know in your heart of hearts it's not right. It's not fair, and it isn't treating people of talent with merit. It says that there's another merit, right, which is whiteness and the centrality of the white experience, which yeah. really mattered in terms of how they created narratives, whether you wrote them, I'm a writer as well, whether mm-hmm. you met on writing projects, whether you were meeting on acting projects, your actual acting talent was sort of not that important what mattered was how much you look like the centrality of the narrative structure not of the piece but of the narrative structure mm-hmm. of american uh viewership right yeah yeah and the so safest that's view the safest view that the the you know the the minds behind the production want you to see right quote unquote safest. yeah i mean look I've, I've always said you know like there's a lot of racism in america a lot of people are racist we all are we all have racism built into us by the culture but 
there are some virulent racists in this world. One of the hardest though, bits of racism to get past is not practiced by virulent racists. It's practiced by people who are afraid of offending racists. Mm. And so like there were a lot of gatekeepers mm. early in my career, like, you know, I would love to have dinner with, like I have dinner with you. I had you so great. I loved you on the play. I could never cast you on this TV show because what would middle America think if you were the lead, right? Like yeah. that's not possible. And like, I, I, I can't even see it. Right. And to the credit of a lot of women of color who became executives and some men, of course, but a lot of women of color who became executives in Hollywood, they started, you know, calling it out and like making sure that creators and participants were people of color, uh, women, you know, LGBTQ people. So there's a big diversification of everything. Now don't, you know, don't get this wrong, though. The most jobs that are available to everyone are still white men. They still work more than everybody, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. And this, you know, look, it's the way it is. But like a lot more people of different types and, and sorts are working and um, we're starting to reflect the society we live in instead of just the kind of um, particular aesthetic appeal of a certain stripe. Right. So anyway, yeah. I started doing movies in like 07. Uh, I made my first picture with Jim Cameron. Um, it was my first job in front of a camera. I was super lucky to do it. I went down there not knowing how to do really, or not, not, I didn't know. I didn't have any faith that I knew how to act in front of a camera. And mm -hmm. yeah. he was the person who probably made me understand that A, I did, and B, it was a technical, real endeavor. And it wasn't just about a kind of, um, you know, I think I had it in my head just because of my experience and also my inexperience that uh, you had to be a certain kind of person for the camera to love you and all that crap. And it just turned mm -hmm. out like all you had to do was really like act well and in proportion and technically do it as an art, you know, as a craft. And that's, that sounds simple, but it, to me, that was a huge breakthrough because I just trusted him to run the camera mm -hmm. and the whole set and I just acted, right? And um, I enjoyed that process a lot. I got a lot out of it. Um, I then made a movie with Sam Raimi. I made a movie with Chris Nolan. Made a movie with Deepa Mehta a few years later. I've, you know, I've worked with some of the better filmmakers around. I generally those are the people whose work I seem to fit into and who, who my work appeals to. So um, I was really fortunate in that way, and I've just been really, you know, in being an actor. I think is a lot of you're in an experience of your own, and you're gonna. I mean, everyone's like this, and almost it's just different. But every human being lives a life that's their own experience, mm -hmm. but. Yeah you are going to go through some of the more unusual experiences a person goes through, or put it another way, the same experiences everyone goes through, sometimes more acutely. And like yeah. the ups and downs <laughs> of our lives are more like this, you know, the sinusoidal um, uh, variance is very high. The dynamic variance is very high. And we also have a lot of um, dead zone time, you know, like we all yeah. audition, audition, audition. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, that's my story. That's a bit, you know, uh, I, I, you know, uh, illustrated a bit more than maybe you wanted to be too, but I did tell you the, the no. general outlines how, how I got here. That's fantastic. I think this is this is perfect. This be, I, I think that we just keep the conversation rolling. That term you bring up with like having this dead zone time, and mm -hmm. when you were first getting into acting, I have to imagine that that dead zone time was probably pretty daunting. How did you like actually like get comfortable in your profession and your lifestyle? I mean, I think part of that is you make your choices and you 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 take your bets and you pay them off. You know, mm -hmm. like you. If, and I know people who went to drama school with me who just decided when they faced the industry, and I get this, they were like, it's not for me. Yeah. I did this. This was two, three years of my life. I was stoked. I thought it was for me. It is not for me. I don't like it. I'm going to do something totally different. And they did, and they're happy, mm -hmm. you know? And um, hats off. Like, you should know what you can endure. I've always said, I think, the, you know, in acting, the greatest talent you can have, is if it's a talent, is the ability to endure, you know? Yeah. Um, 
being super good looking also helps. But uh, <laughs> the, having the talent to endure is is the most important thing because you will go through these. I mean, you can't you can't help but take it personal, but you wish you didn't. Mm-hmm. Which is just the times where you're just irrelevant. You don't count, especially early on. My God, like you saying you're an actor, you might as well say you've just shown up. You know, on the most oversubscribed cruise ever, and there's no yeah. place to put you. Right, like mm-hmm. it's like no one knows what to do with you. No one knows yeah. what you can do to help them. You have no idea anybody who was connected to it even gets you into auditions or mm-hmm. get an agent. And like there are so many layers of penetration because it is an oversubscribed prof- profession. And you'd also, to be fair, subscribe by various levels of commitment. There are people who are like, I'm 21. I want to be an actor for a while, and they're dumb. They're 23, and that's awesome. Great, you know. Yeah. And there's people who like me who are lifers. You know, like mm-hmm. once I decided at 18 and a half. I kind of knew this was it for me. What doesn't mean I don't have huge, you know, periods of doubt or like where you're like, I don't Mm -hmm. even know if I'm working enough to to make this my calling or like, you know, there's all those times in life where you're like, I don't know what the difference is going to be. So um, it it, it is, it is daunting. You have to make your peace with it. You have to be uh, also, you know, it's, it's a lot like life. Like when you're not in this kind of profession, if you're a surgeon, like you said, or you Mm -hmm. do some other job, you work in an office or whatever. Um, there's a peace you make with that and you you know you want that and that's what you chose to cultivate and your life has that rhythm and yeah. acting if you're choosing to do it the acting is the, the highest joy there is and for most actors you job you get you just wait mm-hmm. to get the job and you you have to kind of accept that there's a much larger process at work that you can't really influence much more than offering yourself and yeah. to the degree that you have a gravitational attraction to the elements there you might get some a little bit extra, you know, juice on you or get a little extra ability to get in there. And mm-hmm. every actor goes through, I think if you do it long enough, every actor goes through the periods where no one will arrest you. Uh, you start to get into some stuff. You work a lot. You get super hot. That goes down. No one will arrest you. It's like that is you have you make peace with a real psychological reality, which is like all that stuff is an illusion, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It just is the process. So you know, that's how you have to kind of do it. It's not easy. I'm not suggesting it's even doable, but that's the ve- that's the vector you're on, right? Yeah. So try to treat it with some respect. Yeah. Absolutely. Like we a, yeah, we don't have like a mathematical equation to saying this is what you've got to do. These are the steps we got to take because no. you, you're you're discussing your own process and I, I love it because it, it does kind of mirror conversations we've had with other actors too who have either sometimes by chance, sometimes it's networking, uh, one of uh, Lou Temple, who was on our show from The Walking Dead, mentioned that he followed a woman into a, a theater house that he intended to hit on, and he realized, I love what they're doing here, and and that's how he entered the the industry, you know. So um, that was one thing I did want to focus on for a little bit. There was, mm-hmm. if there was like a, a maybe a, a specific instance, or maybe there was like a a planning process that went into it. Like what what kind of took you off of the surgeon track into into the acting realm. Yeah, and you'd kind of mentioned that like you you started doing I think like an acting uh, you started doing acting and you just instantly knew was there like a part or a process or an exercise or something you did that just really sucked. You yeah, out? there was an exercise and it was also just the time of letting that exercise and, and what had happened um, ring in my life mm-hmm. like a bell and like I I you know we did this exercise where you wrote that something about your life and then you said it out loud and you read it to the classes if you were saying it right and you memorized the river and then i did it and then the teacher was like just turn around and do it with your back to the audience and 
Todd Salovey was his name. He was a very good first acting teacher to have and um, very accepting, very informa informative, um, had really good standards, but never um, never came from them. It also never made you feel shitty if you were, you know, just a student taking a class who's not going to be an actor. Like, mm -hmm. he, he held the standard without making it rough on you. Anyway, I, I read out my, my back to the audience and I just, I'd, I'd written about my parents and myself or something. You know, it was something sort of about my upbringing. And I just heard my voice come out of me. And it was like, I told the truth about myself in a way that I had never heard. And, like, you know, looking back now, I think there's a lot of pressure on that kid, you know, who's trying to be um, really American and not, he wishes he was white and wasn't, you know, conforming to what he wanted to be, which I think is true of everybody to some degree. Mm -hmm. And at home wasn't Indian enough and wasn't like a good boy and like was too rebellious and all that a little bit. And even the rebellion was pretty minor, but still any rebellion to a Hindu Brahmin family is pretty bad. And so I wasn't like fitting in and I found this thing that like spoke like, well, you're real, like you, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. And then as I started to work on it, I started to attach and click into these parts of myself that were being activated to the things I admired in the world. And like, I started to unveil myself. I mean, I think the, the truth of that also is that acting is a journey into understanding human life through understanding yourself. It is not through understanding, I don't think, it is not about understanding human life through understanding mm -hmm. random fictional people. Those sure. people only matter to the degree that you make them specifically true to what you know. And that doesn't mean just you yourself. I mean, you experience other people, you experience the world, you read, you your imagination, all that stuff. But specificity begat, begets universality. You know, like that's how mm -hmm. we are all moved. And that's how we're all attached. We see it, we go, ah, you know. Um, yeah. So that moment to me is like, it was the truth. And uh, when you're young, there's not a lot of truth in your life. There's a lot of like fabulation and yeah. we fib about ourselves. Or we try on different personalities and we, you know, you think you're one thing, you're a skater, you're a goth, you're a um, yeah. grunge person, you are um, emo, you are blah, blah, jock. You are, I mean, and the more you go into acting, everyone seems to creep out of those like other things yeah. and they come into the Island of Misfit Toys and then everyone's in the theater, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you know, this does kind of we 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 pepper in some fan questions as we go to leap and sure and, we, and we've kind of straddled a little bit of this. Um, but one of our fans in particular was asking if you had any advice for either aspiring artists and creators on relationships with their parents similar to the experiences that you've gone through. Um. Yeah, you know, here's what I would say is the best advice. Test your own convictions, not with your parents, but with yourself. Like test yeah. your convictions with how to the degree you're willing to go through all this, right? And to the degree they're freaked out, they're concerned, humanize them. When you're younger, the problem that we all have, and even my words will be lost because it's hard to hear this unless you really care what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your parents at the age you turn 18 or 19 have lost the ability to guide you through youth because you're no longer a youth. It's mm -hmm. not that they have no ability to guide you. They'll, they'll help you guide you as an adult. But they're back now to their own choices they made into adulthood. Those are very specific to them. Yeah. They they're going to worry about you if they have 99.99% of the uh, anxiety and love and care that most parents have for their kids. They're yeah. going to worry about you. Just put that on the shelf, okay? Like they're going to worry about you. They're going to think you're throwing your life away. They also have their own worries, right? And so you are going to have to convince them that you are on something you believe in. You love them and you don't want to have friction with them about it because it just makes it worse. There's no okay. reason to. Just say, hey, we disagree about this, right? 
The flip side is let's say your parents are super into you being an actor, right? The other thing is you should be able to say, I'm doing this for as long as I find it interesting. Mm -hmm. And to the degree this is about your enthusiasm, I'm stoked, but this is not your life, it's mine. And that goes both ways. And that's an honest truth. You don't have to rub anyone's face in it. You don't have to be rough about it. It's your money. You know, your kid, especially a young actor, that's your money, not theirs. Mm-hmm. And if their love or their relationship or their intensity with you becomes enveloped in whose money it is, you need to quickly dis- abuse them of that notion. It is your money. You earned it because they may have to see you through so many years of you getting an education, finding a new profession. There's a lot of time. It's not time for you to, for them to spend your money for them, right? Mm-hmm. So that when you're younger, I have no many actors, you, that, that has to be yours to, to decide. And don't let people emotionalize your money. It's easier said than done. But that's true. And, you know, when you're older, it's your life. And don't let anyone emotionalize your decisions about what you should do. You, they're your mistakes to make also. If you end up sticking around as an actor for 25 years and you do one play, and that was yeah. the glory of your life, that was your choice. Mm-hmm. But you have to live with that too. Like if you didn't pick up other skills or if you did or didn't, whatever you did, right? That's on you. Yeah. There's no tragedy here. There's no... Uh, this life is not life is not a narrative theater. That's why we have the theater. Yeah. Your life yeah. is yours. You, the consequences are borne by you, and, um, and no one has any sympathy for those who then cry later. Because I think that's you know you know by the time you start twenty three twenty four you should know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great advice. I mean, um, I, I think about that too in the in the realm of how when you look at our like past generations and our parents, they were used to doing jobs the same job, sometimes 25, 30, 40 years. And, and the process that you've kind of discussed mirrors a lot of how the job market is these days. We don't always know what we want to do right away and it takes time. And, and so that's why you need to try out different things as you go. And so I really do appreciate your words on that because it mirrors a lot of not just my own personal journey. It is very similar like that, where mm-hmm. you, you just, you learn a little bit more as you go. No one's, no one should expect you to have it figured out you know, right out of the box. <laughs> no, and I think you, you've you tried uh, different things too as well because uh, you did some teaching uh, yourself, uh, I think, for at least one summer, right? At uh, the Marlboro School in California? Yeah, I mean, well, that yeah. was, look, that was back mm-hmm. when sort of acting for most of your life will not pay the bills, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I was a tutor and an educator for a long time and I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. It was not easy, but I did it. Um, I taught a comedy class and an acting class there. I also taught math there that summer oh. um and uh i it was i was a tutor for a long 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 time so i paid the bills while i was you know you do a play you, you get you get paid well enough to pay all the rent and you have your expenses and do all that and mm-hmm. when you finish the play you might have a month's rent saved up that's it so you yeah. gotta have a, a day gig until you get start working from camera it used to be before mm-hmm. my generation you could work in regional theater make a living you know with the expenses of rent and the non acceleration of regional theater salaries and theater salaries mm-hmm. unless they're on Broadway, which even then can be tough because New York's expensive. Yeah. I've done that and it's nice, but like you don't, you don't save that much, you know, um, it, it is now you have to work in front of camera. And so you have to wait for that career to start. And that's a career that can start at any time. And it takes a while for it took a while for me, but you know, everyone's different. Everyone's on their own, but yes, um, mm-hmm. I've had many kinds of jobs in my life. Uh, I've also had really understanding, helpful parents. When I've been in a jam or a bind, they've helped me out. Generally, mm-hmm. they of course want me to, you know, sink this one on my own. But there have been times when my dad has definitely saved my tail. Um, but, you know, I also just been lucky. Life's been lucky. I've had good, great, good fortune when I've needed it. And you know, there's times when you're running out of money, you get a job, bam, you're doing two plays in a row and you're safe. Mm-hmm. You know, or like, yeah. you know, I I was on a game show and won some money there, and that that like <laughs> helped pay for like a year and a half 
of my not having to, you know, if I kept my nut low enough and okay. I tutored a little bit, but not completely, I was able to keep it sort of good and still audition, you know? And yeah. um, those things are, those things are the things you have to count on. You know, if you put yourself in the way of, uh, you're in danger of doing good things, you lose some good things from time to time. So yeah, I've been very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are the first Jeopardy champion that we've had on this show. That that little game well, show not, that we your mentioned. podcast. Well, your podcast doesn't specialize on Jeopardy champions. There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I remember seeing that story for the first time, and I went, mm-hmm. "I went, holy crap!" You know, what, what are the odds? Uh, and then, mm-hmm. and, and I really do appreciate once again just the journey you've taken, uh, both on camera and off. I mean, there there is a lot there to to kind of go through. So that's why we wanted to celebrate that. Uh, Speaking of kind of going through some of some of your experiences, though, now we're not a sports mm. show by any means, um, but Joe and I are both based in Wisconsin and we, we do follow your Twitter as well. And I couldn't help but notice that you have a very turbulent relationship with the Denver Broncos. <laughs> uh, a- asking yeah. if they're even a football like, team, you know, like uh, how did that yeah, start? Well, listen, after, so <laughs> I, I moved to Denver when I was like eight and a half from Saudi we went to Denver to work on, uh, I was working at an airport there. My mother was teaching. Um, and we got there as Elway was traded yeah. from uh, the Colts mm-hmm. to the Broncos. And so mm-hmm. my science teacher, because you know, I was very into science, my science teacher was a huge Broncos fan. He would do these elaborate like chalk drawings to highlight the results of the game. I didn't even know how to watch football. I don't know how, how it worked, right? And so mm-hmm. I got kind of into it because of him. And then as we left, I started becoming a Bronco fan because I was watching Elway play a lot, you know. And so I, for a couple of years there, I started following them more closely and they started doing really well, right? Yeah. And as long as that team was owned by Pat Bolin, that team had a standard of excellence that was upheld through a culture that is the hardest thing to do in sports, right? Which is to have an internal mm-hmm. culture and the correct rewards, incentives, and cudgels to create a winning atmosphere. Obviously, Kraft and Belichick have done it in New, in New England to the highest degree I've seen any sports organization in the world. The Dodgers here do it really well now. Um, yeah. But the Broncos, for as long as Bolin owned them, they went to more Super Bowls than they had losing seasons, right? That's yeah. a crazy, crazy yeah. statistic, right? And since he went into his sad, you know, um, he, he, he had Alzheimer's, and so his decline was sort of, off stage, but we all knew he was kind of slowly losing his ability to govern the team. And yeah. Joe Ellis and Elway and these other people were running the team, and they basically ran it into the ground. And it's been a disaster. I mean, like again, I get angry with Elway for a lot of things. I get angry with these people because I—it's I, not just that they're incompetent. I think they can try their best and still be bad, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the product is not good. The team is terrible. That game against the Browns, I said, are they a professional football team? Like, yes or no? Because it does not appear to be professional level effort out there. Like, the coaching is terrible. Vic Fangio is clearly, I mean, if you're a first time 63 year old head coach, I'm sorry, there's a reason, unless you're the most overlooked guy and bam, you do it and you're like competitive and your team is great, then it's like, you know what? That guy did get the shaft. That guy should have mm-hmm. been a coach in 45, right? No, yeah. this guy is a terrible head coach. His teams are so unprepared. His side of the ball, he's supposed to be a defensive genius. His system is taking over the NFL. He can't even run his own defense. Like, <laughs> they get run over constantly mm-hmm. on the run and the pass. We're at best mediocre and mostly horrible, mm-hmm. right? In every yeah. phase of the game, that, that team is incompetent. And to the degree that football teams are kind of run around, you know, getting a good franchise quarterback, a decent offensive mm-hmm. line, especially the tackle on the blind side of the quarterback, whether he's left or right handed, usually the left tackle is a right handed. And having yep. young enough players come through the system so that your system of getting contracts 
and getting younger players up and then kind of either letting them go when they are get too expensive or mm-hmm. the good ones paying them and then, you know, maybe trading them and like using assets to constantly accrete value. There's yeah. a kind of lack of that kind of intelligence in the building and that the system is never built to like outsmart the, our rivals. There's a kind of like generic idea and then it all goes to shit in the detail. So yeah, mm-hmm. I've had a really difficult time watching them lose given how much we won. As uh, you know, maybe I'm spoiled. I, I, I'm not a Jets fan, right? But I can't accept that kind of thing in my life, right? Like, I can accept a bad season here or there. I can't accept like endemic idiocy. Like that, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that seems like just you hate yourself, right? If you're yeah. a Jets fan, you like being a fan of a losing team. It's just pure and simple. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always think like Bengals fans are gonna not, not what not know what to do now because Burrow and Chase are so good that it's like. <laughs> Better get used to winning kids because you're going to be losers for a while. Yeah. Uh, and, like, you know, all those players mm-hmm. somehow pass through our hands, right? So yeah. we – I have a lot of problems with them. And I, I, I also am outraged. Like, I'll say another thing. Like, uh, I made this on my Twitter. I'm very political. But I'm also open to people having their own politics. I think America suffers when, like, we claim someone just doesn't count, right? Like, yeah. for some reason, whatever reason, aesthetically, something you said, whatever, you don't count anymore. And you're Absolutism. out. right? Uh, yeah, yeah, all purity testing. Also, it's just an aggression without proof, an aggression of, of annihilation, right? Which I think is just—it's not fair on any point. And by the way, let's be honest: racial minorities, women, gays, marginalized people have been annihilated forever. So they are obviously the first people that should be allowed to speak and get get right, right? And I'm a brown person; I get this, right? I'm a son of immigrants; I get a lot of that mm-hmm. shit. But there is a difference between me accepting everyone's politics and then what I think Elway did, which really made me upset, which was. When Neil Gorsuch was being considered for the seat that had been held for Garland and not heard, which was a political maneuver of the highest, you know, mm-hmm. chicanerous, but not illegal, right? It was not, it was yeah. chicanery and it's terrible. And it's, it's also a terrible precedent. I think it's bad for the country. It's horrible to do these kinds of things. Just because you can doesn't mean you should is a really important thing, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. when Elway wrote to endorse Gorsuch on Denver Broncos stationery as yeah. the vice president of football operations, that took it over the line for me. And I sent him a letter and I, he blocked me on Twitter, um, oh, but I was oh. very clear. I'm like, I, this is not right. Like you hold a public trust by being in charge of a sports franchise that you were a legend of. And yeah. I accept that you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, whatever, dude, like yeah. you don't like taxes or whatever your problem is. Cool. You, you yeah. like the meretricious mm-hmm. nature of what you think sports is awesome. But when you get into this kind of culture war as the official of like the, the team, I think you're putting your thumb on a scale in a weird, weird way. Right. And I thought it was kind of yeah. gross. And we're all Democrats and Republicans or independents. And we all go to work together. And the country is now suffering from this terrible um, excess of personal fervor, you know, yeah. and inexpert self-assertion. And uh, everything is identity politics. And everything is a kind of um, uh, everyone's a victim, and which can't be true, right? And yeah. That yeah. we suddenly have to we have to have only ours in the tent. And if anyone else succeeds, like it, it, it's better you don't succeed than the country succeed. Like it's just it's it's insane. Like it, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, I understand the rage people feel because they're being stoked to feel it. But oh, like yeah. if you're on tilt all the time, you're going to feel that, right? Yeah. And I myself have felt it. I myself have been part of it. I'm not different or separate. I'm not better than it. But I'm trying to get through it. Because I yeah. also believe, especially after recent deep dives into um, the Civil War, the pre-Civil War period and the Lincoln's presidency, mm-hmm. just how terrible it can be and how yeah. this seems like it's about absolutely nothing, right? It's all kind of engineered, which doesn't mean yeah. it's not real. 
It's just I'm mm-hmm. saying like the differences aren't slavery. You know, the yeah. differences are like kind of aesthetic and and tribalistic, and it's become like sports, which is horrible. That's well, not what politics exactly. No, happy. I completely agree with you that that politics is almost like a sports conversation now because it's it's less about debating ideas and more about arguing opinions. You know, like I, I think that's really where we get into trouble as a society from that viewpoint. And I, I you know, I actually forgot about that Elway story that you just mentioned. I think it's I think it's a really uh, bold move to use stationary, and your opinions do not reflect everyone who is under that umbrella. So, Correct. I mean, I. Uh, yeah, that's 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 unfortunate for that. But it, it is kind of funny that you're also the first person on this show to be blocked by John Elway on Twitter. Now we know we've got some firsts that we're doing today. <laughs> Listen, John, if you're listening to this, let's bury the hatchet. Uh, I'm happy to, to have a, a much more civil Twitter conversation with you if you'd like it that way. You're still a legend in my heart. And I, and I, and I cried and wept when you lost those Super Bowls and wept when you won. And it, I'll always have that sense of, uh, a deep fealty to your legend, if not the man you became. But you know, listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, if he blocks me and that gives him the pleasure of blocking the people who would criticize him, I get that too. Like I would yeah. probably do the same. <laughs> well, well if, yeah. if the country is uh, really turning into like a, basically a sports franchise of politics, I'll be happy that it's not being run like the Miami Dolphins because I'm definitely fine with. I've subscribed to losing football team. I signed on out of spite when I was young. I've been holding it ever since, and I'm just. I'm too old to switch teams. Well, I, let me put it this way. I, I also say this about sports versus politics, which is why maybe this is a good metaphor for the Dolphins, right? <laughs> is that the reason we have sports is the politics is in sports, yep. right? Like when politics yeah. is sports, you end up in civil war, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like the reason <laughs> yeah. we have sports is so we can pour those stupid passions into things that don't fucking matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like the Miami Dolphins are not even from Miami. They're from no. all over the country. You're rooting for laundry, as Seinfeld said. And he's right. You're literally rooting for a shirt yep. and a logo and like, mm-hmm. great. And we do it because we know it's inane. It's yeah. stupid. But it's the thing you attach yourself to so that you don't attach politics to this shit. Like, exactly. this is the thing that screwed us up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you expanding on that. I, I know that once again, we're not a sports related show, but it's it's fun to yeah, kind of go can, down that route. We can yeah. move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is fun. I love that. Hey, no, there, there was a reason. <laughs> we love the the art of the segue. That's kind of a podcast thing. Mm-hmm. But speaking of, of teams and, and ones that mm-hmm. work, I mean, you immediately broke into the scene with with films that that really, really worked well. And so that's that's where you've mentioned some of this too, where like they've been deeply rooted in sci-fi and they're they're celebrated because of not just content but ideas and and uh, and, and just just the presentation of these overall. Um, now, one thing that I have always appreciated about you as an actor is are, are some of the things that you mentioned that you kind of learn along the way. These are like the little pieces of characters that kind of come together. And what I've noticed about you in particular, um, whether it's Drag Me to Hell, whether it's Inception to a point, I mean, you're, you've got a, a language, like you mentioned, physically, where when you're talking to people, you're leaning towards them. You know, when when you're, uh, you know, trying to open up to other characters, I mean, your, your body language shows that too, right? And so when I look at you in a film or, or property, that's the first thing that I kind of hone in on. It's like, I'd have a beer with this guy. <laughs> whatever's going on in this movie i, I want to hang out with this guy so as as part of your your you know i guess your process and how you you built that up over your career um 
was that something you focused on kind of front loaded it or did we refine this as we went um I don't know who we is because I it's me not you but server because are we still working I'm like first of all you're working I'm eating yeah. and second yeah. of all I, I don't consider this work right <laughs> um I'm just Josh with you uh so I would say this man um the bottom line truth of that is this I think stage actors have a very quick education on what their relationship to the audience is. And it has to do with a kind of, how do I put this succinctly? It's a place, if the, it's right for the character, right? And not everyone has this gear. Mm -hmm. But it's a place where you sit your center of mind in relation to the aspect of being in public. And to the degree you do that openly without asking for anything, right? Mm -hmm. You are perceived as charismatic and likable, right? And to the degree you shield it, but let it poke through, you're seen as fascinating and interesting. To the degree you don't know where that gear goes, you just don't have that as an operative weapon, right? Which is fine, because not everyone has everything, right? I don't, I can't hulk on screen like Jason Momoa. It's never yeah. gonna happen. <laughs> Right. Uh, I don't have that physical build. And so um, there's a there's a certain place in me that and I think it has something to do with like coming through both being an, a son of immigrants and coming to a culture that was very different and making that leap fully, you know, mm -hmm. is that I have a certain way of being where my rhythm and my uh, aspect take away protection. And I don't protect myself, and but I also come across as being calmly present, like on an emotional. I can go up and down, but like I'm not having you come in to my uh, and those characters at least. Another characters is different, but like in those two characters, I'm not having you become uh, intimate with me in a way that where you feel like this guy's unstable, right? And there are characters that are like that, where it's like yeah. I'm going to be very still, I am completely raw, and you are terrified because you don't know what I'm going to do. Like that can happen, and that's how you use the same thing in a different way, right? Same. Same uh, tool. Um, yeah. But the part of you where you're like, you know, I want to be with that guy. Some of that is also, you know, to be frank, but some decisions I made about the casts I was in, right? Like, in Drag Me to Hell, like, there's the femme fatale who's got the big lift, and she's doing a ton of the work, and mm -hmm. she's discovering the movie, the plot, and the nature of the thing. I am the guy who's, like, guiding her to explore it. But also, I wanted to have certain shades of things that made him much more human instead of just being like a, like a, um, uh, a plot uh, device to help her discover it, right? So, like, yeah. some of the things I gave him were a kind of, like, you know, a deep interest in her vulnerability and her kind of aloneness, right? Mm -hmm. And how unsupportive he felt like her boyfriend was to her given her situation, right? Yeah. He was more about surfaces than he was about assisting her in the situation she was in because he wasn't credulous. Mm -hmm. But also that he also had this human side of him that was, like, yeah, but also I don't want to get involved. Like I will yeah. totally tell you, but I don't want to. This sounds terrifying. I don't want to be there when this shit happens, right? Like, and mm -hmm. that also made it to me much more like um, real to me. Like, it made his character seem realer to me. And Sam seems to support me doing more of that. So I ended yeah. up having these like really open conversations with her while doing all this exposition. I also mm -hmm. think it's one of these things in movies like that when you play this kind of role in those films particularly, you have a lot of expository material to get through. 
And if oh, yeah. you do it as like a kind of um, even like a lecture, it's bad, right? Mm-hmm. One of the great yeah. examples of doing it great, like great of all time, is in Raiders of the Lost Ark when um, Indy does the whole, it's like a 10, 12 minute scene. He describes the Ark of the Covenant and the yeah. opens the Bible and he goes through mm-hmm. and looks at it. And like, you, you have a really long, emotionally driven, clear context exp- exposition for the whole movie with two like government apparatchiks where they're going, you know, and like he, he does that so beautifully because he makes it a compellingly vulnerable and interesting to him. Yeah. Right. And so I, I have, I've always really liked Harrison Ford. I think, you know, we're very different kind of actors in some ways alike in others. And mm-hmm. I really like his work. I mean, I, he's one of my, like, he's up there with me for like Oldman and Lewis who are my idols. De Niro, Pacino, Nicholson, Meryl Streep, Cape Blanchett. Those people are like heroes to me. You know, Russian yeah. Seth, uh, Kingsley, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Harrison Ford has always had this unbelievable ability to make things that are dry on the page mm-hmm. have a valence to him, whether it's like I'm interested or I'm irritated by it and I'll tell you about it. Um, I don't like that this is true, but here it is, yeah. right? Or you expect me to want to care about this? I don't want to. There's a great moment in Blade Runner where she goes, have you ever had a false positive? <laughs> and he goes, no. And it's like, yeah. he's protecting mm-hmm. himself from this level of like, you think you can scrutinize me? I'm scrutinizing mm-hmm. you, right? Like, yeah. And I have an attitude about, obviously, this vulnerable idea of like, did I ever retire someone on accident? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I didn't. And I'm not going to let you have at me. And that kind of attitudinizing, it's not the word attitudinizing is a terrible word, but you have to have a certain relationship to those kinds of things. And to me, that thing about wanting to have a beer with that guy is like all those characters have a sense of like engagement with the people around them mm-hmm, to yeah. help them put together the pieces of what we have to do. Right. Yeah. And there's like the whole sequence in Inception about like I left the inner ear stuff so that you still feel the function of the fall. And I yeah. he's particularly proud of it, right? And I was like, the only yeah. way this fucking works is if he's stoked, right? Yeah. yeah. For me. Right, mm-hmm. it's like an achievement. I did it pharmacologically, and for me, that's about research and being really specific. So when that line mm-hmm. comes out, I'm very specific in Deleep's mind what the fictional version of the pharmachemistry is, so I could say it with some aplomb of being like, "And let me tell you how good I am," as opposed to being like, "I generically am proud of it." Right? Like that's yeah. specificity. That's what mm-hmm. good acting is, generally speaking. So you know, I don't care if you're playing on piece of a made in 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 a checkout player, or you're doing inception or whatever you just have to make it really really specific so that it resonates with you yeah and 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 what i related that to was kind of like this this like dan Aykroyd level of enthusiasm for like a ghostbusters because he knows the technology of everything Mm -hmm. that's built out in that that universe right and so that's the same journey we kind of took with yusuf when he's walking us through that i i completely agree i i was sitting there watching like you like going hey I'm a nerd for everything you're about to hear, and I love it, and I'm proud of it. So let's talk about <laughs> it. And you should be. You mm-hmm. should be. We're not. It's we're past the age of where that guy should be semi-embarrassed because he's not a jock or something, right? Yeah. yeah. The other yeah. thing about the Ackroyd level of dorkiness is like I always thought in that movie. It's like he is one of the principal creators of that property, so yeah. he has an enthusiasm that is central. Whereas Murray's entire purpose is to surf it in a sardonic way, like. Yeah, but I'd like to get laid, which is kind of actually now, it's a little, it's a little like weird now. You're like, yeah, things change, yeah. times mm-hmm. change, context change, but it's a movie, you know, it, it still mm-hmm. has its valence. I love the movie, but like it, he seems a little bit like now you're like, 
it's acceptable even then for a dude to be that interested in sleeping with this woman that he's like just not even taking her seriously. And why does and, he have that much Thorazine? No yeah, one should have that, that much Thorazine. Yeah, correct. I agree. Uncomfortable and, amount of Thorazine. And Egon, yeah, when you see it again, you're like, wait, what? wait, no, what were you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, Where's why is plan? this person alone with you, you weirdo? Um, yeah. And then Egon is always like, you know, he's like very technical and mm -hmm. i love that that's what um the secretary finds attractive about him yeah he is withdrawn like he's like he's like yes that is approximately how i feel right like and you're like you're like that is yep. hilarious right mm -hmm. so so it means that Ackroyd has to be that guy he's kind of oh, left yep. with that bag but it's also his bag so it's totally perfect I, I, that's what i was saying also about like fighting your way through a cast right in inception it's like Cobb is like absolutely the 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 pure protagonist he's also the person who suffered the most emotional damage mm -hmm. and we're in this kind of hitchcockian mystery about like what has happened inside of him right yeah and yeah. then he has his like you know second or arthur who's so like you know they're having this rivalry about like, are you being honest with me? Am I the threat? Are you the threat? You're leading me to my doom. Mm -hmm. Then you have Eames who's sort of like, hey man, like this could be a Bond film as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm having a great time. I love Eames, yeah. And I'm the movie star. So it's like, it's like I'm the second movie star. Leo is the movie star movie star. Like always, mm -hmm. always, 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 always. Like, oh yeah. I think he'd be a movie star. Like if you sat him down to next to Bogart, they'd both be movie stars. Like he's immortally a movie star. But you know, Hardy is also walking around in that movie like, you know, I'm, in any other movie, it'd be my movie, right? Like, and he's, yeah. he's kind of just floating through it, you know? And mm -hmm. so, like, he, there's an ease and a kind of physical um, grace he has that it, it, it gives you this, um, you admire and and kind of, like, he cracks you up because he's just so, like, confidently smooth. And so I knew that, like, when I was watching some of that, I was like, you know, I've made the right decisions here because my guy is really his 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 enthusiasms are for what he does, right? And his quandary is that he's being pushed beyond the boundaries of his comfort. Mm -hmm. And so that's the tension, that's his journey, right? In the movie, really. So that's how I saw it. Yeah, and, and you've obviously had quite a few questions about Inception, so we don't want to be too too aggressive <laughs> here. But <laughs> Joe does have a fan question from oh. Inception that <laughs> we, we all kind of tilted our heads at. And we're interested to hear what you think about this. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's hear it. I probably heard yep. it before. All right. So, uh, fan question wants to know what happens in Yusuf's first dream if he has indigestion instead of too much champagne. Uh, there's yeah. I've heard I've heard that too. <laughs> um, I always said it, if if Chris was true to the way he he constructs these things, the the actual image would have started to bubble through with gas right and you would see like the the actual reality like floating through like it was as if the whole thing was underwater and like gas was bubbling through it like that would be what it was and it would just suddenly drain <laughs> i don't know i don't know what that is uh yeah it's it's interesting and also you know the the notion of that being how it works is only suggested by Eames, and I deny it. Mm -hmm. So, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that that is even what the mechanism is. It's just a joke that he makes, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, as that as that question came in, I, I actually took it over to my wife, and I went, "Would you ask this question to Dalip?" And she goes, <laughs> "I don't think I would." And I went. <laughs> I mean, I go, but a fan asked it. I gotta, That's I gotta it. 
we're, we're testing it for quality here, you know? Um, but I, I well, listen, agree I'm with not you, though, taking yeah. any of it. I'm not taking it myself so seriously that I'm, like, put off by it. If it's something that genuinely crosses the line with me, I'll just be like, I'm not going to answer that. But, like, mm-hmm. that's just conjecture. It's also funny. And I think it's also, like, yep. it's funny that someone took the premise of the movie seriously to ask it, which is kind of goofy. But um, <laughs> that's what we're, I mean, look, it's mm-hmm. moody. We made a movie. Yeah. It's fun. I'm glad people like it, you know? Well, and that's that's a good, once again, this art of the segue is a lot of podcasts love to do. One of the uh, uh, projects that I really enjoyed seeing you on was the uh, Con Man show with uh, Alan Tudyk. Yeah. And and I, I love how this is kind of like a, a parodied version of of the show circuit that you go through, right? Going from whether it's uh, Comic-Cons, local, national, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, so I, the, the question I had for you on this was your, your connection to that property. You know, how did that begin? And, and uh, I guess how you got connected to it. So uh, the answer, the short answer is that uh, Alan Tudyk is a friend of mine. So he picked up the phone and called me and said, we play this guy. I was like, yes, of course. Awesome. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but the longer answer is that so Alan went to drama school at Juilliard with a good friend of mine named Dave. Uh, Dave Conrad and him were, I think, a year apart there. And they became really close friends. And I met Alan through Dave. And then Alan and I had our own friendship. And then he was like, hey, man, do you want to come do this? I was like, sure. And so I went down and shot it. And uh, we had a really good time. And there's a lot of really good people in that show and it's really absurd and it has a kind of um, uh, knockabout feel about like just the actors kind of doing funny shit that Alan's invented and Alan is like one of the most talented people I've ever met. Like he just can do anything. Mm-hmm. He's so creative and he's any acting thing. He's like a 10, you know, it's like, yeah, he's just that good. easily. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's ch- phenomenally interesting at everything he's doing. And, He's one of those guys that just is like, he's very special in our business. And um, I've always admired his absolute excellence. And, it's, you know, it's weird. I'm sure it's not. But be, just like the best ever at anything, he makes it look so easy. You're like, how the fuck is that happening? But, like, he's <laughs> he's he's really, really gifted. And I was always mm-hmm. stoked to, to do anything or even hang out with him. He's a good, good buddy. And so, yeah, um, yeah that's how that happened. Nice. Awesome. Well, uh, another uh, more recent thing that came out on Amazon was Fanboy. So off of that, my question is, are you still big in Uruguay? Huge. <laughs> Huge in Uruguay. Knew it. Um, no, that was a, so that was made by uh, Sam Raimi's at the time wife, mm-hmm. um, Gillian, and she's a friend too. And so I did it because she's like, we do this. I've got this great actor playing the lead of this thing. And then I met Frank Kranz, who is a brilliant filmmaker, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a show, a movie coming out called Mass. Uh, I just advise you to watch it. It may be the best movie I've seen in a year or two. It's okay. amazing. It is heart wrenching. It is. It's like Ingmar Bergman. There are times when it feels like the camera is not even present. It's like oh, you're just God. in the room. Um, so Fran Kranz is in that, and I always liked that because he's very funny, very talented, very smart dude with the Yale. Um, but he's just also like a mensch, salt of the earth, good dude, mm-hmm. really good guy, raised right, um, and. Yeah, I, I love the guy, but I got to tell you, this movie he's made is like on the highest level. It's just, it's got super high end performances in the Jason Isaac, Martha Plimpton, oh, uh, incredible. Reed, mm-hmm. Reed Bernie. Um, That's right. Uh, That's right. It's it's yeah. so good, man. I can't I can't speak highly enough of it. I think it's high art, like at the highest level, while still mm-hmm. being completely palpably human. It's the last yeah. thing we make anymore. You know, it's adults talking about serious things that have happened to them in very vulnerable, intense conversations where the balance of things shifts a lot. And 
your yeah. sympathies move around the room a lot and your anger comes up and it's um it's just an incredible piece of art and i I can't speak highly enough of it. Anyway, he was the lead of Fanboy. We did that together. I got a lot of fun. Sam was around. And, you know, mm -hmm. I love working with Sam Raimi. I, I think he's just the best person to work with. Um, Fantastic. Every movie, every mm -hmm. day you're on a movie with him is like being on a, like, it's like being on a home movie. It's like everyone <laughs> is so nice. The standard is very mm -hmm. high, but it yeah. feels like it's family. You know, like you'll get fired if you fuck up. Don't get me wrong. Sure. <laughs> but like, uh, he yeah. has a very high artistic standard. But, you know, he's just also one of the most gentlemanly, gracious, giving, collaborative, brilliant people, right? Um, just a treasure. National treasure, Sam Raimi. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I always look fondly back to just his style because uh, I was sure. introduced to Evil Dead as a probably younger than I probably should have been. Uh, but that's most okay. Most people are. Yeah, most people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and and we also have to thank him. I mean, as much as there were superhero movies before him, I mean, Spider-Man really kind of helped oh. vault some of our closeted nerddom and and just make mm -hmm. him into blockbusters. And so, well, he um, was the right person to do it, right? He's he's yeah. a person who's firmly kind of a nerd himself. He's yeah. a film nerd, but he has a lot of deep understanding of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he also has just a really populist kind of streak in him. That's like, yeah, but why do we care? Yeah. You know, like, He's a mm -hmm. storyteller, and I think that like that, he's like his ability to do the things he does is so easy for him at this point. Like his style and his—he's a genius, right? Like he can do that stuff like that. The stuff he cares about is like, why does this beat matter, right? Mm -hmm. And even as the writer, sometimes is like, let's figure this out. I don't know. Uh, what do you think, right? And like you build it together so that it gets better, and um, that's why his movies are so good, I think. And you know, I hats off to him and Toby and, and Kirsten and. And also um, the producer, uh, what's her name? Um, who died recently? Uh, oh. She was Laura Zara Ziskin. Um, she was mm -hmm. amazing in shepherding that project together with Sam and doing the work that needed to be done. And, and those first two, especially Spider Man Two, man, that mm -hmm. movie is immortally one of my favorite superhero movies ever made. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. I, I just think that's such a fine, fine picture, and it's such an emotional ending. You know, um, yeah. I, I just admire the shit out of Sam for that. One of the, the things I always like to do is kind of map out just we've talked about journeys now a couple of times, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in, in looking at your, your, your journey throughout your career, um, I like to see all of all the variants and what types of subjects we're going after here. Um, you know, starting off with Sam in, in the horror realm, moving into some of the cerebral content, right? And, and, but then we move into things like Z nation and, and Mr. Robot that are completely, you know, different fundamentally. Um, so I wanted to get your take on, on these, these, these different types of properties that you've been involved with from a genre standpoint. And if there's, I guess, any, any favorite aspects of horror versus, uh, thrillers, you know, that, that you've really appreciated in your career. Well, I think that, you know, one of the aspects of horror and sci-fi and all these things is they require you to treat the supernatural as if it's natural, right. And casualize the extraordinary and make extraordinary the casual, right basic opposites and yeah. um i think that z nation is one of those experiences i really love the people there it was kind of fun we had a good time there's a lot of work um i remember yeah. like just really leaning into the nature of the world so i watched mm -hmm. a couple of episodes and like whenever you're a guest on a show i think you should always do your best to reinforce the basic nature of the world while 
shading something in that's new. That's why your that's why your episode exists, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I really got a good chance to do that there. There were some really fun days on that set. There were long days, and um, you know, I, I I think that kind of thing is just such a joy when you're around actors that are having fun. And you get to lean into like the kind of campiness of that thing, and like yeah. it's yeah. excellently done. The work is really excellent; it's like a very high level mm-hmm. of achievement. But it's its aesthetic is a little goofy, you know. And <laughs> I think that there's a lot more for of that is can be done in this world. Like mm-hmm. everything is really grim now, you know. And I'm not yeah. saying there shouldn't be grim things. Like the Dark Knight is a Dark Knight for a reason. Oh right? yeah. And the new Batman trailer looks awesome, and I'm yeah. so convinced that's going to be a good movie. But um, the goofiness of things is also really important. And there was a lot of that in Drag Me to Hell, too. It's like just just a kind of Three Stooges-ishness to like things where like life itself is like mm-hmm. that. Like there's conundrum stupidities in everything. And you're like, mm-hmm. how did we end up here, right? <laughs> and that constantly happens in real life. And mm-hmm. it happens in the movies. And I think that that kind of thing was really present in terms of the storytelling of Z Nation. And the kind of like p- the pot that kills you kind of thing is hilarious. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I, mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun on that set. Um, Mr. Robot was sort of different. I think Sam wanted me to work on that show. And um, I think he liked my work. And I was so flattered because that show is so awesome and so interesting. Mm-hmm. And Raimi's a real talent. And um, he's a very specific, interesting actor. Like he's like, you know, um, there's a kind of uh, concentrated, intense, yeah. flavor he is that's mm-hmm. like nothing else right it's like if you went to a bar at death and company and they're like oh yeah there is this tincture but it's it's exactly that and he <laughs> is that and he's really mm-hmm. really great and i i enjoyed working with him i enjoyed working on the show uh it was pretty quick just shot a couple of days and done mm-hmm. um but i enjoyed it immensely and those are really good people and they work hard and um they're also th- what was really cool about that is that, like that was like a giant narrative that Sam had in his head that was ongoing every week, every episode, many years. He was telling a story that was like a novel, right? And each section was like a new section. He was putting it in, and he was guiding that thing with Ramy and everyone else. But he was guiding it on rails towards some deeper manifestation about the culture. And um, I think that there's something really deeply admirable about an artist taking something like that on. You know, I. Um, I admire it immensely. Very cool. Well, very. Mm-hmm. We we realize this this section of our 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 conversation. We we can't go too far into spoiler territory, but it's the the idea of of getting to return to a property that's is loved as Avatar because I mean mm-hmm. it kind of it just blew the doors off of cinema when it came out and um, you know f- for some folks this is the first time they got to see on screen too and it was. Um, just a really fun universe to play in, and so uh, since yeah, since there's we we can't obviously ask you about what's what's what your involvement is in the new the new films, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, your thoughts on getting to return to to such a beloved property and and uh, and your place in it? Uh, I think just going back to that set is an honor, and it's a it's a like you said when we did it the first time. I don't think we we knew what we were doing was revolutionary because it was every day like that, and it felt like mm-hmm. that one was like prototypes, and the cameras are all were all like you know brand new, and it is the software was brand new, and uh, it all felt kind of super experimental, especially for someone who had made a lot of experimental films, but this, the whole film felt experimental, you know? Yeah. And so I kind of 
I was learning. I had a lot of, on my plate to just learn how to act and do the movie. And so yeah. I wasn't really totally comprehending. I mean, I was, but also you can't because you just don't know what it's going to be. Because um, we go see some bits of it here and there, and then the pod runs and see the 3D effects and to make sure you watch Jim make sure that it was what he wanted and you can kind of see what he was going for. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had no idea what it would be like, what it would do. And so, like, once we return to the set, it's like, you know, they've been going and you go in and out and, like, there's a lot of time and they're working all the time. It's like a gigantic uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Jim is just the most committed dude and I've never seen anyone work that hard at anything, like, honestly. And the and the Matt, he's a pretty damn good manager of, like, a lot of people. And there's they're all doing his vision, you know. And that's mm-hmm. been true from the beginning, I think, of his filmmaking career. And that's very true in these properties. And, um, you know, it's just it's a personal honor to be back and to work with him. And it felt the same, and yet it's still even more revolutionary. And it's still even more, like, uh, mind-blowing in some ways of what we can do. And, like, everything is kind of serving a really cool story. And that's, like, all I can really say. I mean, I, I, I can't get much further than just saying I can't wait for people to see it. Um, yeah. give, give yeah. him the time give him the time mm-hmm. to finish these two films um, and give him the time to like do the post on them because he is his perfectionism is only to your benefit and his yeah. understanding and governance of what he's doing is only going to serve you having a much better experience than you've ever had before um, and again I even knowing what I know from what everyone else knows about the first one plus having done some of the stuff in these um, I still don't totally know what it's going to do like it's yeah. once they get involved you're talking about thousands of the highest level artists and technical people yeah. working in concert to a single vision um it just goes beyond your account like it you can be as smart as and predictive as you want when you sit down and you put the things on you look at it, you're like i could not possibly right have known what it is and i always have the humility to know with jim cameron mm-hmm. you should you should preserve a degree of your your inexperience as humility to know like you probably don't entirely know what you're gonna see yeah and like james cameron you know he has made my favorite 80 miles of bad road that is aliens so the man's dedication to everything he does is seen in everything that he does like i love this guy's work and we've spent a good chunk of the last portion of the podcast here looking at your career with Sam Raimi, with James Cameron, with Christopher Nolan. So it brings us to our last of our fan questions. And uh, what did this process do for you as an actor? Not only working with the diverse subject matter uh, of the films you've been in, but also working with these very large names in directing. Um, that's an interesting question. I guess, you know, it humbles you and it also does away with a lot of your notional thinking about things. Like there's not a lot of time when you're working with people like that to be like mm-hmm. in awe of them. You know, there's not a lot of time yeah. to like get bullshit between you. Mm-hmm. Like you have to start communicating as artists and people. And like, I am a forward leaning interested artist. I'm interested in being mm-hmm. present and collaborating and doing my job at the highest level I can, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not interested in being interesting. I'm interested mm-hmm. in serving the artist's vision who's writing or directing yeah. it, you know? And, um, with those people, I think what I learned is the more you offer in selfless collaboration, the more reward there is on a artistic level for you mm-hmm. as part of the group. Yeah. Um, 
my journey feels like it's a lesson in learning the total dynamic variance of your career. You will yeah. work on the highest stuff there is in the world and don't get too high on that because then you'll go through the desert of not working for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there's very little you have control over that. You know, the same work you offer is often rejected as the times it is accepted and wanted. And you can't take it too seriously. It's like, you know, dating or something. Like, you ask some girl out, she doesn't want to go out with you. You ask another girl, she does want to go out with you. That doesn't make a difference. Really, those people aren't bad or good, right? Mm -hmm. You just go on a date with one, you don't with the other. And that's just totally fine. Like, yeah. And yeah, it is It is obviously personal when you put yourself out there in both circumstances because you're, you're out there and your world yeah. is out there. But, um, <laughs> you know, with someone like, you know, especially people like Chris, Sam, and Jim, maybe Jim more than anyone else, it's you're you got to show up with everything you got. And like, mm -hmm. they all want that. But with Jim, it's like, you're in this gigantic process. And like, you have to come full so that he can take what you offer on the days you're there to do it and put it right into the movie and then, you know, maximize it. And then he's on to the next thing. And mm -hmm. you, you're, you're a big part of a very big part, you know, or a small yeah. part of a very big part sometimes. And yeah. like, you know, I think all these things teach you a lot about your internal, uh, emotionality about yourself versus your your character and your job are very different things and the more you can leave your own subjective uh mishigas at home and the more you can do your thing with your highest level of expertise love and and uh selfless offering which means mm -hmm. taking your ego out of it a lot of times without without wanting something back you know yeah. um you can have some tremendous rewards in life and and you know, you reach an age like I've reached, I'm 48 years old, and you're pretty clear, like, you're not going to live forever. And so you want the times you spent with other people, and I don't care how famous they are or not, bigger their mm -hmm. name is, but you want the time you spent with other people doing the things you care about to matter to everyone who was there, and you tried your best to try to uncover something that was truthful. Now, not every truth you uncover is going to be like, going to be a contender, right? Sometimes <laughs> yeah. you're going to uncover things that are like, Oh my God, what a beautiful brain, right? You're going to find, you're going to find these things that are human. And, um, I think you're going to have to accept that your truth is crucial to your life and your art, mm -hmm. but it may never look like what you on your subjective Michigan side want or need. You just have to be present for the part that you were allowed to play yeah. and you were, and that you were also, uh, crucial to play. And to um, embrace the collaboration and the belonging, because I think every artist is an artist out of some divorce from belonging to something mm -hmm. they they in their childhood or tra trauma of their youth. And in our art making, we recollaborate with the past and the present in an, in a deeply hopeful, wishful faith of the greatest order endeavor to bridge to the future. Right. And that's, that's like the thing you have to find your communion in. And finally you do belong. It just, you can't insist that it's on the terms that you fantasize about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you, you obviously put that eloquently better than I think I ever could 
Um, but I, <laughs> I, what I, I always love to hear about because uh, we don't want these interviews to be viewed like a eulogy or something, right? They're, that's not what these are meant to be. Uh, Jesus Christ, man! What do you guys have in mind? Well, <laughs> no, no. Here, here's here's he the reason I say that. No, I wouldn't have gone with eulogy. No, 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 no. I say I don't want this to be a eulogy because uh, when we were talking uh, with, uh, I don't, with uh, dude, I don't want to be a ref for my eulogy. That sounds like a terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I always I, I set the plate for this because uh, in previous conversations, someone went, "Man, I feel like I have a lot more in the tank," and I go, "Yeah, yeah, you do. We're not saying you don't, you know." And, and it was, uh, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Like it's a judgment yeah. of. Of like a, 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 a to finish someone's career. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and that's, I don't think anyone should. That, that's why we always like to ask about, um, you know, not just what you have going on tomorrow, but you know, other aspirations that you have too that maybe we haven't tapped into yet, um, and and exploring that a little bit here. Um, you know, like I think every single actor has a Hamlet in him. I'm slowly reaching the end of the tender. I can really play it. Uh, I probably have another couple of years because I look pretty young, but. Uh, I want to play Hamlet. Um, <laughs> I want to direct my own pictures, and I want to write and direct yeah. my own pictures. And mm-hmm. there's a horror movie I'm writing right now that I want to. I'm at least going to star in. I'm probably not going to get directed because that's money, and they don't trust you to do that right out of the gate. But uh, mm-hmm. it's a genre franchise thing that I think could, could have some legs, and it has some stuff that's specific to my background, and which I really like. And um, I'm exploring some stuff about you know white supremacy and about Indian you know casteism and. Also, the nature of experiencing, you know, the the horror of the idea of Nazism using Indian symbols and Indian cultural artifacts as the symbols of their genocide, right? Like, that's interesting to me. And there's a lot of, you know, Hindu mythology, which is also very interesting to me. So I'm exploring some of that in the project I'm working on. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I, the more you audition, the more you see what there is, what there isn't. The thing I would like to do, which really we don't have in this country, but I would love to, is to do one of those like British detective shows. It's like popular but genre-ish, you know, and mm-hmm, noir-y. Yeah. Like, 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 like a Luther, detective, or maybe, yeah, like, mm-hmm. or yeah, Luther, or like True Detective is like the one example mm-hmm. we have that's here. But they have a lot more shows like that, like you know, like Vera and like yeah. uh, especially Endeavor is like one of my favorite shows ever. Mm-hmm. And the writer's Russ Lewis is an awesome dude. If I could get him to write a show for me in America, I would be totally stoked. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing I'd love to do. But anyway, yeah, like there's a, I, I do want to direct and write starting soon. And, and that's the kind of thing like where I love working with other actors. And, you know, I'm a good acting teacher and I'm a good acting problem solver. I have the brains for it and the feel for it. And I like helping younger actors figure stuff out when I'm working with them or when we're all collaborating in plays and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've directed a bunch of that stuff in my life. I was appointed as actually a professor, but I turned it down. Uh, to teach acting at the MFA program at UC Irvine. And like, I I do enjoy that aspect of things. And I don't think I want to do a class or something, but I think I would like to direct and be like, all right, let's just figure this out. You know, that's maybe something I want to look forward to. But, you know, more of the same, more and more acting, more mm-hmm. doing more, being on stage again. I, I miss the stage because the pandemic has shut it down and it's coming back now, but it's still difficult. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think I'd like to maybe do series television for a couple of years. I think that would be kind of fun. If the part is right and I'm the right fit for them, because that's a you know mm-hmm. big time collaboration, that's a big thing. Like you're stepping into a couple of years of work. Yeah, and they're gonna spend a lot of money on it, and like you know you just have to be really right and mm-hmm. for each other. So maybe that'll happen. You know, we'll see. I, I'm kind of open to a lot of things at this point, but I'm also trying not to wish too specifically. Otherwise, your expectations end up being the engine of your disappointment. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess in in closing, is there anything that you would like the uh, our our listeners, the the dissection crew, as we call them, is there anything that you would like to offer to them in, in parting? 
You know, I would say thank God for the people who go to the theater and rent the stuff at home or whatever, but especially people who go to the theater and sit in the dark with um, strangers and watch things on big screens. Uh, we're, we're really grateful. I think we can forget how important they are to the equation. So all my gratitude. Um, I would say, like, you know, we're in a particular era of intellectual property and of making films, which is very narrow, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, it feels like the triumph of the nerds, which I'm stoked for. I'm a nerd, but <laughs> I also, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm mm -hmm. an adult and I've had grown-up experiences. And I hope that their appetites and their interests will be brought enough that we can start to make other kinds of art, like our generation's Chinatown, our generation's mm -hmm. The Godfather, our generation's... Um, Kramer versus Kramer, our generation's grown-up movies, right? Like where they're about concepts that are sometimes a little more down to earth, but just as momentous, you know, and that we don't have to only explore our parental child relationships through being Clark Kent and Jonathan Kent, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and that we don't have to just explore that, 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 uh, uh, Bruce Wayne wants Thomas Wayne to love him still, even though he's dead. Like we yeah. can have other relationships like where we see what it's like to be in a complex adult, uh, child, child, you know, parent relationship or sibling relationships that involve some things that are closer to us and aren't, aren't intermediated by genre. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is where we seem to be the only place of doing it now is that like, it's it's great for siblings because they're both superheroes or something. I and mean, you're like, yeah. yeah. How about how about they're not? How about, mm -hmm. how about how about they're just two people who grew up on the same block, you know, yeah. th and their brothers are like, you know, there's that mm -hmm. fascinating idea. I think my friend had a fascinating idea about a, a a man who leaves, walks out on his family, but he only moves two blocks away, <laughs> and then he like watches them, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, see, that is an amazing idea. To yeah, play. like. That would be spectacularly interesting to watch the humanity of that mm -hmm. discovery, right? And what the happenstance, like, r imagine running into your kid. What the fuck are you? you know, like, that would be so great. And, like, mm -hmm. I, these are the kinds of things that, like, I'm, you know, I'm super interested in. So thank you to your audience. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Don't forget, we made other stuff. We may still do it. Yes. And, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it's all welcome, right? Like we all, mm -hmm. inclusivity, right? Like one of the things about inclusivity that I, because I'm a big proponent of that and I'm I'm glad to be included. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the most important things to remember in that is that it, it, you include people you don't know and people you don't necessarily agree with and you can disagree with them and people who have terrible opinions, have terrible opinions, but you want to include them because mm -hmm. if you choose to exclude people, you're you're harming your own circle and you're harming them irreparably and then you're also irreparably harming the relationship between that individual and the group and then you get two groups three groups ten groups n groups and mm -hmm. then we're not we're mm -hmm. not a community anymore you know and so thank them for being a community thanks for doing their thing um again we couldn't make what we make without you so i am deeply grateful from all of us who do it we don't express it enough that's our back but thank you well, we are deeply grateful and very thankful that you were able to come on today. So from this side of the screen, Dilip, thank you so much for coming on. We have had welcome, an man. absolute great time and it was our pleasure to have you today. Awesome, guys. Take care and uh, best luck. Joe, based on some of the origin stories we've had a chance to explore on this program, 
I have to say, Deleeps is easily one of like the most. I don't want to say unorthodox. It's not the right word, but it's definitely not the story <laughs> I was expecting. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. And I'm actually kind of sad that there are no giant robots involved, so I can't say robot after you use program to start this whole thing out. <laughs> um, but no, what an incredible story! Like everything from how much he moved around when he was younger to how he really develops a character before putting them on screen and just i think his willingness and kind of resolution to change the accessibility of like figures in hollywood with people like us just doing podcasts in our basement and how he wants to have stronger connections between uh the industry and the people who who you know consume these films and these movies uh, so i think that is one of the coolest things that he's doing out uh, out there right now yeah I, I will say it was nice to actually just kind of sit back and take in the bevy of things that delete mentions like we, mm -hmm. we really did cover quite a bit during this conversation and not just talking about you know specific roles in a movie or you know, just the, the standard fan questions you always hear, right? Mm -hmm. But but yes, kudos to, to Dalip for what he has done here to normalize and to kind of remove the whole pedestal, you know, uh, idea that he mentioned, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he's just, he's just a fun guy to sit down with. And we really can't wait to see his upcoming appearances here in Avatar. I know that uh, I, I'm at least a big fan. I'm not sure about you, Joe. Mm -hmm. but, oh, uh, absolutely love it. And I'm really hoping... That somehow, some way, he smooths things over with John Elway and they can get this team back on track. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, folks, um, we appreciate you joining us for this conversation. And we do have a bit of an announcement to make as we wind down on season one, this, this extremely long road that we've been on. But we are ending this season with our creator spotlight. We're sitting down with some of our favorite artists, writers, and designers as we explore animation, comics, and video game design. We'll be foregoing the normal side-stitch format that we've been doing since the beginning of this, this season. <laughs> so for the next four weeks, we're gonna have one episode a week. We'll be featuring a very specific creator. So uh, instead of doing the side-stitch, we'll be sharing some more information about their projects and where you can find their work. And uh, yeah, we really look forward to sharing what's coming up next. Yeah, and we are extremely thankful to all of our guests who've been joined by the, these incredibly wonderful people. And we are also really looking forward to being able to share their journeys, their talents, and everything that is them with all of you. So until next time, keep on dissecting.